China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and on today's podcast, I'm joined by Kristen Looney, an Assistant Professor of Asia Studies and Government at Georgetown University. We'll be discussing her recent book, Mobilizing for Development, The Modernization of Rural East Asia, which was just published by Cornell University Press. Kristen, thanks for joining the podcast. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So I wanted to start out our discussion by asking you about your your general research interests and how you came to this topic of East Asia political economy. You were at Harvard where you did your PhD and you studied under the, the eminent political scientists, Rod McFarquhar and Liz Perry. So I can imagine you going into, let's say, elite politics. So I'm curious how you came to this really fascinating nexus of politics and economics, which is looking at East Asia political economy and development standards. I was really interested in the Chinese countryside before I started my PhD program. I was living in China in the early 2000s, and I remember at that time there was this book that was published that was getting all this attention. Um, it was by Li Changping, who uh, was a former township party secretary in Hubei. And it was called I Tell the Truth to the Premier, and it was describing some of the problems, severe problems, that rural China was facing while he was in township government. And it was addressed to Zhu Rongji, who was the premier under Jiang Zemin, as you know. That was actually the first book in Chinese that I ever read cover to cover. And so I got really deeply interested in what was happening in China's countryside. And I came into Harvard with that interest. And so that's kind of why I, I ventured into this area of research. I like to think that both Liz and Rod had an imprint on the book. You can definitely see Rod's effect just in terms of the number of Chinese sources, Chinese scholars and Chinese top-level officials that I read and cite in the book. I mean, he really encouraged me to read everything that was happening as much as I could about central policy, central agricultural policy, and to follow that and, and describe it in as much detail as I possibly could. And, you know, Liz Perry has a wide range of interests and has published some articles earlier in her career. And I guess also edited some books, too, that look at uh, grassroots rural mobilization. And she's also very interested in mobilizational politics and campaigns. Right. So she was a she was a great advisor in terms of trying to develop the conceptual framework for the book. So they both had a, a role in it. Yeah. And I have to say, looking at your acknowledgments, I noticed that you and I were, were both also uh, uh, taught by Carl Gerth, who was, uh, when I was at Oxford, was, was there. And then I was fortunate, I was over at UC San Diego and, and where Carl is now a, a history professor. Yes, Carl is fantastic. He taught a Chinese history class that I took when I was an undergraduate at Wellesley. I was a senior in the college and Carl was finishing up his dissertation at Harvard and had a visiting position at Wellesley. So I was really, really lucky to be able to take his class. Again, the, the focus of today is this great new book, which you've just published called Mobilizing for Development, the Modernization of Rural East Asia. And I wonder for listeners, if you can just take a few minutes and just lay out what is the main argument or what are the main arguments that you're pushing in this book? To sum it up in just a few sentences, the main argument is that our conventional understanding of the East Asian miracle or East Asian industrial development is rooted in a sense of East Asia having very strong bureaucratic institutions that are run by these technically skilled leaders or technocrats, and that it was the right combination of institutions in East Asia that facilitated the economic miracle of the 60s through the 80s that really put East Asia on the map of the global economy. And that argument has also been applied to China 
in recent decades. The argument of the book is that if you actually switch the focus from industrial development to rural development, rural development did not unfold in the same way. It's very difficult to attribute East Asia's success in rural development to having the right combination of institutions and technocratic leadership. And instead, I argue in the book that mass mobilization campaigns that were initiated and sponsored and executed by the state, so state-sponsored campaigns, played a really important role in East Asia generally. But of course, these campaigns led to different outcomes in different countries. And so the book gets into the specifics of the conditions under which campaigns work or don't work. That's actually a good jumping off point because I I wanted to ask you, given the strong focus in, in this on these state-sponsored campaigns, if you could unpack what a state-sponsored campaign is. I think, of course, for folks who are even nominally interested in China, they would be aware of a famous example of a state-sponsored campaign, which is the Great Leap Forward. But of course, there have been hundreds, if not thousands, of these types of campaigns in PRC history of varying success and targeting a range of different policy outcomes. So can you just talk at a general level, what is a state-sponsored policy campaign and, and how does that differ, let's say, from a normal policy design and implementation process we might know, for example, in the, in the United States? So the book focuses on rural modernization campaigns, which I define briefly as policies that rely on really high levels of mobilization to affect dramatic change. And by high levels of mobilization, I'm speaking about both bureaucratic mobilization and popular mobilization or mass mobilization. And then by affecting dramatic change, that can be interpreted broadly. But I mean that these policies aim to overhaul traditional ways of life in the countryside. Of course, there's a lot of different kinds of campaigns. If you look back at the Maoist period, you're right, the Great Leap Forward stands out as the most famous example of a campaign and a failed campaign at that because of the tragic outcome and famine deaths that resulted from the campaign. But there were hundreds of campaigns at the national level and then going down to the local level, there were thousands of campaigns. If you look at all of the examples that have occurred, not just from 49 onwards, but from the 1920s, after the Communist Party was established in 1921, through the present. So in the reform era from 1978 onwards, mass mobilization has not been an explicit goal of the regime. In fact, Deng Xiaoping repudiated the use of mass campaigns to achieve goals. And those goals... You know, my book focuses on rural development, but of course those goals could be anything. They could be ideological goals. They could be anti-corruption. Anti-corruption campaigns under Xi Jinping, for example, are, are very recent examples of campaigns. But the, the key thing to note about a campaign is that the goals are transformative. The level of mobilization expected is very high. It overrides other work. So state agents who work on very different things normally would be brought into the realm of the campaign to temporarily work on that. And campaigns are also recognized oftentimes by their tactics and methods of implementation. So along with mobilization, you have intensive propaganda, the dispatching of outside work teams, cadre work teams, to villages or factories or whatever the target is. In addition to that, the exaltation of model sites to spur people into action. Those are some that I can think of immediately. Um, also competition among localities to kind of outdo each other and then higher levels rewarding successful local examples is another thing that goes, that is part and parcel of campaigns. So I, 
if, if let's say we were dropped down into the middle of China, we would know we would be in a campaign if, for example, we saw proliferation of propaganda posters highlighting, you know, the, the objective or outcome or the, str- the struggle against whatever it is we're trying to achieve. Yes. We would, if we were a government official at the local level, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing we would be seeing a lot more sort of concerted directives about objectives that, and targets or quotas that, that we need to be meeting. Propaganda authorities would really be pushing a sort of consistent set of lines to, to channel or mobilize all resources towards, towards this outcome. Right, exactly. And campaigns in the reform era have oftentimes been used during periods of crisis. So just looking at the recent efforts to contain COVID-19, right, There's this, the Chinese state has kind of used all of its mobilizational resources to launch a campaign to contain the virus. This was true of SARS also. And having, as you said, these kind of like deadlines or timelines that people have to accomplish goals by is another trademark of campaigns. So the poverty alleviation efforts by Xi Jinping have set the goal of eliminating extreme poverty by the end of 2020, right? So that's another campaign in which everyone's expected to to chip in in order to achieve that goal on a really condensed timeline. I'm just curious, you have three case studies in the book. You look at Taiwan, South Korea, and China. You're looking at at state-sponsored campaigns across all three. I, I just want to ask you briefly, how did campaigns at a broad level, how did these differ across these three different countries? Or do they kind of look and feel the same? Or is there something qualitatively or quantitatively different about the CCP style of, of campaigns? So the three campaigns that I look at are the community development campaign, which took place in rural Taiwan in the 1970s, the New Village Movement, or the Semal Undong, which took place in South Korea in the 1970s, and then the new socialist countryside, which took place in China in the 2000s under the Hu Jintao administration. These campaigns share a lot in common. If you just look at the goals and some of the propaganda and even some of the methods of implementation, they were all very similar, in part because these countries were all looking to one another's experiences and actively studying it and replicating it. So China, for example, sent tens of thousands of civil servants to South Korea to study the new village movement before, during, and after it started implementing the new socialist countryside. The key differences, I argue, come down to the degree of central control over local officials and also the degree of rural participation in campaigns. And just briefly stating what I mean by that with regard to the China case, for example, is that I argue that in China, it's much more difficult for central authorities to control local officials than it was in Taiwan and South Korea. That may sound like a kind of an obvious statement because of the size and scale of the state. But I think the paradox that's worth noting in China's case is that there's this strong capacity for the state to mobilize local officials. Once the central government announces that there is a campaign, local officials can't do nothing. They have to react. They have to spur themselves into action. Their careers often depend on it, right? But the central government has a very difficult time monitoring the quality of implementation at the local level. And in the context of a campaign, which in all cases that I looked at created a very highly kind of politicized, high political pressure environment, local officials are tempted to really take things to extremes in order to attract the attention of higher levels and show them that they are ardent supporters and activists working in service of the campaign. And so not monitoring, not being able to successfully monitor local officials in China doesn't mean the policy fails to get implemented. It means it gets implemented to excess, right? So local officials kind of 
take the policy goals and implement them in an extreme way. And I can talk about outcomes in a minute, but to, to the point about rural participation, I think one of the kind of tragic things about campaigns in the reform era, given that China has always emphasized the participation, the Communist Party has always emphasized the participation of the rural masses or the masses in general in policy implementation, is that there is no more mass participation in campaigns. It's encouraged, but it's not required. And as I say in the book, I'm not arguing that we should go back to the days of Maoist populism, where everybody is essentially compelled to participate in campaigns. But I am arguing that the lack or absence of even basic participation at the local level also carries its own dangers, its own risks, which is that local officials essentially have the green light to manage everything about the policy and take these policies which are meant to be transformative, they're meant to transform the face of the countryside and and everything about rural life. And the absence of mass participation or feedback means that local officials are even more likely to carry things to dangerous extremes. Now, I wanted to, as we move towards this actual discussion of the new socialist countryside, I, I wanted to ask just a few more questions of, uh, of groundwork laying. One of them is you, you talk about this idea of, of urban bias, which seems to be a, a, not a, a unique feature to China that seems relatively universal in why the incentives are such that resources are channeled into urban areas. But I wonder if you can talk about it, this, this in the context of China in the reform and opening period. You quote Mao Zedong as saying, we cannot throw away the country countryside and just look after the cities. And obviously in party mythology and lore, it is precisely from the countryside and rural areas that the Communist Party draws its strength. Yet, beginning in the mid-1980s, there's a, a pretty concerted pivot from a focus on agricultural development to urban areas. So I wonder if you can talk about urban bias and and why it is that many developmental states seem to be favoring urban over rural areas. Throughout world history, every modernizing state has adopted policies that exhibit urban bias to some degree. So the World Bank, for example, has this huge project where they look at the development experiences of countries all over the world, historically and in the more contemporary period. And they find this is just part of industrialization, right? States everywhere try to transfer resources from the countryside to the cities in order to fund industrialization and urban expansion. And urban bias is the idea that economic growth can only be achieved through urban industrial expansion, right? That there are limits to how far an economy can develop if it remains primarily rural and agricultural. And this has to do with ideas of economies of scale, right? You can achieve that in industry more than you can achieve it in agriculture. You can be more competitive in the global economy if you have successful industry versus if you're primarily agricultural, right? Urban bias is a problem that countries all over the world have dealt with historically. The question is not whether there's urban bias, it's how much urban bias exists. China is this, uh, under the Communist Party, came to power, as you rightly mentioned, on the backs of peasant support, right? Promising that they were going to remedy the problems of rural immiseration and underdevelopment. And even though Mao Zedong is famous for his connection to the peasants and, you know, his positive views of the countryside, he also embraced policies that were rooted in urban bias. So in the 1950s, heavy industrialization was embraced as the main development strategy because the Chinese were modeling their economic policies after the Soviets. The Great Leap Forward, despite rhetoric about you know, walking on two legs, promoting heavy and light industry. It was a massive exercise in extraction. So urban bias existed in the Maoist period as well, right? Moving into the reform era, 
I think there was a lot of excitement in the late 70s, early 80s that Deng Xiaoping was going to be this very pro-rural leader of China because he supported decollectivization, he supported increasing the government procurement prices for rice and other uh, basic agricultural commodities. And there was this period of wealth and prosperity in the countryside that occurred in the early 1980s. And then in the later 80s, in the early 90s, you had the growth of township and village enterprises, which also brought a lot of prosperity to the countryside. However, as I point out in the book, it's really... After 1984, central government support for the countryside declines markedly. So there is, it cuts investment. It reduces procurement prices for grain again. And it kind of leaves the provision of public goods, et cetera, to the villages themselves. And then after the Tiananmen Square uprising in 89, this policy of urban bias gets cemented in terms of the provision of public goods and most investment being channeled to urban areas because the regime doesn't want to risk urban discontent. As the Tiananmen uprising in 89 demonstrated to people, right, that was politically way more threatening to the regime than some localized rural protests. So uh, the way I characterize the reform era is that it was a period of decollectivization and prosperity in the early 80s, followed by rural resource extraction and neglect. And so the main difference between China and other cases is that you did have this really successful growth of township and village enterprises. So there was some degree of rural industrialization that continued to bring wealth to the countryside, even after the central government turned its back on the countryside. But then in the 1990s under Li Keqiang, you have the tightened constraints on rural credit and, and kind of these new economic conditions that actually created an adverse environment for TVEs, uh, township and village enterprises to function. So in my view, it's not really until the 2000s that we see the discrimination against agriculture start to go down. And by the World Bank's measures, too, that's when urban bias starts to be reversed or to decline in China. You paint a pretty dire picture about the state of, of China's rural areas in the late 1990s and, and 2000s. And again, this is, is set up for, or this is the context for which the new socialist countryside you know, movement comes into being. But I wonder if you can paint a picture of what it was like in rural China in the late 1990s and, and 2000s. You have some pretty stark statistics about levels of income inequality, about rural wages. What was it like there? And what was the level of discontent or dissatisfaction like? Just generally speaking, it was not profitable to be a farmer in the late 1990s. There was actually a negative growth in farm incomes in the late 90s. And there was also a decline in arable land that occurred. So you had this problem of landless farmers emerge, not for the first time. I mean, at various points in history, there have been landless farmers, but it, it emerged as a, as a significant problem in the late 1990s. And the reasons for that had to do with expanding urban governments, right? The building of new cities on the outskirts of old cities and the creation of development zones that required rural land. It required more land than had previously been allocated to urban governments for expansion. So there was this growing appetite for land that was also fueled by the tax reform, the famous, you know, big tax reform of the mid-1990s that increased the central government's portion of taxes vis-a-vis -vis local governments. So local governments became even more fiscally dependent on land. And so it was within their interest to accumulate as much land as possible and sell it to urban industrial buyers. So you had declining grain production as a result of that too, massive drops in the late 1990s. So you have declining incomes, declining grain production, and local officials not just taking land, but also putting exorbitant tax burdens on farmers, extracting 
collecting all kinds of miscellaneous fees. And if you look at the literature from the late 90s, I mentioned Li Changping at the beginning of our discussion. There's also a lot of strong literature published by Western scholars, Thomas Bernstein and Xiaobo Lu, Taxation Without Representation of Rural China, also Kevin O'Brien and Lian Zhang Li's book, uh, Rightful Resistance in Rural China. Within China, Yu Jianrong, a famous sociologist, did a lot of groundbreaking research about tax-based protests in Hengyang County. I mean, there's a number of scholars, there's well-established literature about how predatory local governments, who were predatory because they were trying to get money to fund industrial growth in local areas, Areas, but they were predatory from the perspective of farmers because, who were not necessarily benefiting from these uh, growth projects. It resulted in mass protests. And there's reports of these protests turning very violent with, with farmers arming themselves, burning down government buildings, and some of these protests spanning jurisdictions, being cross-township, cross-county, or even province-wide. And you often saw these protests break out in China's grain belt, right? In Hubei, Jiangxi, Anhui, Henan, etc., this kind of central part of China that produces the majority of China's food supply. So it's this confluence of factors, right? Predatory local governments, declining farm incomes, declining grain production, and add on top of that China's concerns about food security and social instability in general. And yes, it's a very bleak picture, which is why I think in the, in the 2000s, the Hu Jintao administration believed it was time to reverse course and adopt some sweeping policy reforms to try and ameliorate the situation. So a, a perfectly uh, set up uh, segue here, uh, Kristen, to precisely this, which is Hu Jintao arrives, there seemed to be this, what at the time many scholars were calling this kind of leftward shift in China's policy environment that could be felt in the sort of 2003-2004. How did this come to the new socialist countryside? What was this campaign? What was it intending to do? And then what were the results of this? So the new socialist countryside was introduced in 2005. That slogan, building a new socialist countryside, though, actually dates back to the Mao era, the mid-1950s. And I think the Hu Wen administration was intentional about linking up this policy to the 1950s to kind of imbue it with a revolutionary quality and importance. And building a new socialist countryside became the top policy priority of the 11th five-year plan, which lasted from 2006 to 2010. One of the policies that went along with that was the elimination of agricultural taxes. It was announced in 2005, I think became effective in 2006. And then increasing central government investment in the countryside. And on top of that, there was this espousing of a wide variety of goals. So increasing production was one of the goals. Also increasing social welfare and living standards, improving democratic governance in the countryside, civilizing culture. And then this last one, which I really focus on in the book, the official slogan was tidying up the villages. So changing kind of the physical appearance of villages was also a goal of the new socialist countryside. But as with all campaigns, goals can be wide and vague, and it's unclear what goals local government should prioritize or how to go about achieving them. And so naturally, once the policy was announced, there was a lot of debate about what it was and how it should be achieved. And there are kind of two main schools of thought that are opposed to each other, that were opposed to each other 
when debating the new socialist countryside. On the one hand, you had people who thought the policy should be used to speed up the pace of urbanization and to turn the countryside into a strong base for consumption. If we modernize the countryside, the argument goes, then China will have a very strong consumer base and its economy will no longer be so reliant on global exports and the world economy. So it can absorb some of the surplus production that was evident, for example, in the 97 Asian financial crisis. That surplus production, if it can't find a home overseas, if export markets are vulnerable or cut off or, you know, in flux, then that can be absorbed within China itself. Then on the other hand, you had people who were very critical of this view, arguing that the whole point of the new socialist countryside is to improve the livelihood of farmers. And if you just stress consumption so much, it's going to cause what in China is called peasant burdens to return. You know, we just eliminated agricultural taxes. People need a, a break. They need a financial break. They shouldn't be pressured into purchasing goods for the Chinese economy. That should happen on its own. But the priority really needs to be to improve agriculture, improve the rural economy so that consumption follows naturally. And the priority should really be on soft infrastructure rather than hard infrastructure and people's welfare, right? Improving welfare as opposed to improving their access to digital gadgets. <laughs> so there was a big debate about what the new socialist countryside was, and it was never really resolved. The central government didn't actually clarify. So as a result, local governments kind of interpreted it the way they wanted to. And I would say that after the global financial crisis of 2008-2009, the balance tipped in favor of the urbanization domestic demand view of the policy. And the central government jumped on board with that view too. So subsidies that previously were limited to, for example, grain production or education or healthcare. Now included subsidies for new home construction and purchasing cars and purchasing home electronics. Uh, there was, in fact, like a sub campaign in the new socialist countryside called right? Home electronics go to the countryside. So you can really see this view kind of winning out after the global financial crisis. And as a result, I argue in the book that the new socialist countryside kind of takes this turn, this dramatic turn from being a broad-based development campaign to one that's almost solely focused on housing at the local level. Housing being the key driver of not only the local construction economies, but also consumption. This vision that once peasants move into more modernized housing, they're going to buy durable goods to fill that housing and modern appliances, et cetera, et cetera. And this is going to be really the next step in, in China's rural modernization. As these campaigns evolve, and I think specifically the new socialist countryside, how are these being evaluated for success? And as these evolve, is that because the expectations of the planners is shifting? Do they intervene to rewrite campaigns or do these just kind of follow their own political logic? Every locality in China has their own standards for evaluating the policy. The central government did release guidelines for how the new socialist countryside could be evaluated. These things look like quantitative rubrics, right? Checklists that have points connected to them. And I've seen a number of these at the local level, but I've also seen kind of the central government's blueprint for this, where they break down the new socialist countryside goals. There were, I think, five official goals into kind of subcategories and then into further programs of those subcategories. And then they assign numeric points to them. And there's both a kind of cadre individual government official evaluation, then 
also a program evaluation. But whether or not the central guidelines were adopted at the locality is a mystery, right? It can only be determined by actually going around and collecting these local level evaluations. And Within every province, there's guidelines. Within every city and county, there's guidelines. There, there were guidelines. And they would use self-reporting, but also outside inspection teams to go monitor performance at the local level. So that's how these things were evaluated. In terms of like the government's ability to correct course when there are problems, the government did try to rein in this rural housing bonanza in the late 2000s. Chen Xiuen who was the leader of the central leading group on agricultural work, made a number of pronouncements in the late 2000s and early 2010s, warning against housing programs and, and specifically moving farmers into apartments and high rises. And so that's not what the new socialist countryside has ever been about. Even Justin Lin, you know, former World Bank president, who was one of the first people to advocate that China have a new socialist countryside campaign, has come out and said that while I support this campaign as a way to absorb surplus production and build a strong consumer base, I don't support moving peasants into multi-story or apartment-style housing because that is a violation of their property rights and it facilitates land grabs in rural China. So central government officials and outspoken economists have criticized this development, but the point that I make in the book is that they can criticize it all they want, but the central government is also sending mixed signals, right? It's also giving subsidies for new housing construction. And after 2007, the central government's own rhetoric about urbanization and what they call rural urban integrated development or urban rural integrated development, that rhetoric increased. And so the lines between the new socialist countryside and these new urbanization initiatives really blurred. And so it became very difficult for local officials to interpret what to do. And so they kind of continued doing what they were doing and and simply made pronouncements that, in fact, this was in line with what the residents of their localities wanted. And this was participatory and people had signed contracts showing their agreement to go along with this, etc. So it's it was very, very hard for the central government to rein this in. One last thing on that point is that the central government really upheld Chongqing and Chengdu as national models for integrated urban rural development. And if anyone looks at images of the Chengdu and Chongqing countryside, all they see is mass housing complexes. So that really undermined these other voices trying to rein in this excessive focus on housing. Uh, Fast forwarding a a decade and a half, I I actually wanted to end this really fascinating discussion by tying this framework and this analysis to the present, which is we are in the midst of another pedal to the metal, full frontal assault campaign uh, under Xi Jinping to alleviate poverty. And I was just this morning, I was looking at uh, Renmin Wang, and there's a big piece out there laying out the, the strategy for the quote, struggle against poverty. And the opening sentence says, by the end of 2020, all rural people in China will be lifted out of poverty, which is a solemn commitment made by the party central committee to the people of the whole country and must be fulfilled on schedule. I, I want to ask you with your framework and lens here and with this, this study that you've just done, I wonder if you can just think out loud on this current campaign to end poverty alleviation. It's really hard for obviously an external observer like myself to know what will, what 
will become of this is this the sort of thing where because Xi Jinping commands it, we will have some nominal end of poverty by 2020 on paper? Or do you think this has the possibility, given the, the full court press coming from the top leader himself, that this will actually make some significant progress in, in meaningfully ending or alleviating rural poverty? I think the poverty alleviation campaign under Xi Jinping is a real mixed bag. On the positive side, I think that the Xi administration has tried to ensure that funding for rural development, which actually goes by the name Three Rural Issues Funding in China, you know, Sanong funding, to make sure that that funding is going to the poorest households in China. And I think that's a positive development because one of the big problems with the new socialist countryside was also how difficult it was to monitor and track funding coming down through central fiscal transfers or provincial level transfers. And it would have to go through all these layers of government. And it's not that the transfer system has disappeared, but one innovation under the C administration is that individual accounts for poverty households have been set up so that the transfers go directly into those accounts rather than being dispersed by local officials, which is what I had observed under the new socialist countryside. So prioritizing the needs of poor of the poorest households and ensuring a more direct way of getting them financial support, I think is a really positive development. On the negative side, poverty alleviation has been interpreted as relocating poor households from remote villages to better equipped, more modern villages that are built on the outskirts of cities and towns. So relocation has become central to these efforts. And in some cases, people might want to relocate, but in a lot of cases, they feel like they have no choice. There have been these viral stories recently coming out of Shandong about a policy called so village mergers. And farmers there in the midst of the coronavirus pandemic just this year have been forced to sign these contracts saying that they agree to their village being demolished and that they would move into these centralized housing complexes, which in Shandong they're calling new rural communities. So new rural communities have been around since the mid-2000s. They are part of the poverty alleviation campaign. The idea behind them is that these are more developed villages in terms of both infrastructure and the services that are available to people. But the pace at which this is being implemented in Shandong is really extreme, and there's there's no real choice. And I think the reason these stories are getting so much attention is because actually, like, the demolition is happening before the new construction, so farmers are displaced for a period of several months, if not years, in some cases two years, before the new housing is built. And the relocation of poor households, or just all households in the Shandong countryside, into these newly developed modern villages is problematic because it's not clear whether it actually reduces poverty or improves the quality of life. It's not clear if it reduces poverty because it actually contributes to new financial burdens on rural households. These, the housing is not totally free. It's subsidized, but people have to take on debt usually to pay the difference or to actually renovate and furnish it. They also see an increase in their monthly living expenses because they no longer, for example, have gardens to grow their own vegetables and they now have to pay utilities and electricity, et cetera, et cetera. So they have these monthly increases that they see in the amount of money going out of their own household economy. And then the other big problem is that the housing is being built in areas where there's not necessarily jobs. And this critique can be extended to ghost cities or other kind of grand urbanization plans as well. 
housing, and this is a point I make in my book, housing-centered rural urbanization is fundamentally different than the old township and village enterprise process of rural urbanization. Because TVEs led to the urbanization of the Guangdong countryside and the Zhejiang and the Jiangsu countryside and all this prosperity, right? Because it brought jobs and it led to the expansion of those cities and the the building up of, of urban developments in the countryside. This is a new form of rural urbanization that's occurring without the attendant growth of non-farm jobs. And so you have poverty households being moved into these villages where supposedly they have a better standard of living, but really they're now almost entirely dependent on the state for their survival, you know, from welfare, et cetera, or their family members who are now migrant workers. Because many, in many cases, the new housing for poverty households and for anyone who's been relocated is located very far from their fields. So many people end up giving up farming altogether. So you have this whole new class of people who are welfare dependent. And I think that, you know, it's it's hard to say whether or not you think poverty has really been alleviated, if that's the case. Just hearing you describe the, the way that this is being implemented towards the end of your book, you write that um, about the erosion or the deterioration of, of popular participation in campaigns, something you touched upon earlier in our mm-hmm. conversation. And you, and you remark about how Popular participation in campaigns, whether voluntary or not, was seen as integral to the execution of policy, and cadres who neglected this principle were said to be guilty of, quote, commandism. A key finding of this analysis, meaning your book, is that while campaigns have indeed survived the post-Mao transition, only the commandist impulse has endured. And in describing this poverty alleviation campaign, and and certainly based on my own analysis, you've hit the nail on the head there. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you. So thank you very much for this. It's really, really fascinating. And I think this is, you know, even for folks who don't necessarily think like they, they're focused or interested in, in agriculture, certainly for me, just a really great benefit of this book was understanding policymaking and policy implementation here and, and the way that campaigns are structured and are carried out. And obviously, as we just discussed, Campaigns are very much alive and well. So I think for for Mm -hmm. anyone who's just interested in how the C administration will be pushing and implementing policy, this has been a really campaign heavy administration. And I I expect that sort of commandist mentality will persist for the next 500 years as Xi Jinping uh, rules into the (laughs) 25th century. But anyway, Kristen, really want to thank you. This is really, really great. And and, uh, it's a fantastic book. Thank you so much for inviting me to talk about it, Jude. I really appreciate it. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 